Oh, jeez. Oh, my gosh. You're listening to Aw Geez, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio. We provide an authentic Minnesota perspective on a show named after a city in North Dakota. I'm Tracy Mumford. I'm a producer for NPR News. I'm Jay Gabler from The Current. And Tracy, do you know what it means if you are the Lord of No Mercy in Bridge? Fill me in. Uh, it means nothing. It has nothing to do with bridge, has nothing to do with philosophy. It's just a cute title for this week's episode. Seriously? Yeah, as far as I can tell. All right, philosophy nerds, if we miss something, let us know. Otherwise, yeah, Lord of No Mercy just sounds like somebody's like World of Warcraft handle online. I'm not going to lie. But Jay, I'm so glad to see that you're here and you're okay and you're alive. I mean, we're starting to lose people on Fargo. Whenever we hit this part of the season, I get a little, get a little emotional because the people you like are, are starting to go. Yeah, my doppelganger has not fared so well, but that's that's for our Twin Peaks podcast, our <laughs> non-existent Twin Peaks podcast. So yeah, this episode was The Lord of No Mercy, and we start uh, right where we left, right in the house of Nikki and Ray. Um, and Nikki's not doing so hot, which, I mean, sh- that said, she's doing better than I thought she would be after the beating we saw her take last episode. Yeah, she's doing really poorly. And the episode actually opens with this almost like beatific image of Ray sitting in his stairwell with this light shining down on him. And this episode really sort of reminds you that Ray lives in a basement. Well, technically, I guess you would call it a garden level apartment. I've lived in those before. Uh, although it's a garden level apartment with a mortgage, as we learn later. Yeah, I don't quite know how that works. I guess this is uh, what counts as a condo in St. Cloud. But yeah, so Ray actually lives not only in a mo- much more humble domicile than his brother Emmett, but he literally lives below the ground that he is down underground caring for Nikki who is still really hurting and moving very slowly after the rough beating she took last episode and refuses actual medical help uh, because right she is uh, on parole she's worried that not only would the police be looking for her but potentially Mimo and Yuri as well but she actually wants to go looking for them herself and so does Ray They want to make a plan. They're going to track down the people who gave Nikki a beating and they're going to exact some revenge, which, uh, you know, isn't going to end well. So Ray grabs his gun, which he keeps below his vinyl collection, which I would love to know what's in Ray's vinyl collection. But that's that's another discussion anyway. And then he grabs the gun clip, which he keeps for safety's sake in the cheese drawer. As you do. Well, and we get that classic line where she's like, you ready? And he's like, you betcha. So we know we're headed for some good old fashioned Midwest mayhem there. We switch from that to this bizarre Varga monologue, which we get a couple of in this episode, which I'm I'm just going to say I'm getting a little tired and lost with where he's trying to take me philosophically and historically and what is happening here. But he, he starts talking about three true stories. Obviously, this is a nod to the whole setup of the Fargo franchise being, of course, a true story. You can't see my air quotes, folks, but they're there. This has all been true story. He lays out these stories, which are bizarre. Yeah, so he tells the story about Lehman Brothers, the bank that essentially went kaput overnight when people lost confidence in it. So it went from being a very real thing, a bank, to being almost without an existence, or at least without value. And uh, that's that's interesting, because we knew that Holly was obsessed with the idea of the 2008 crash, and they've kind of nodded at it so far this season, but this was the explicit connection, in case you had any doubt, 
this is like the creative force behind the season is the crash. Yeah, and there's another reference to it later in the episode. But meanwhile, Varga also mentions the beginning of World War One with the Archduke of, of what country? Archduke Ferdinand. Archduke Ferdinand getting uh, assassinated because he stopped outside the wrong sandwich shop. Exactly. World War One started because of a sandwich. That's Varga's second story. And then his third story is about the faking of the moon landing, which apparently happened on a soundstage in New Mexico. He's telling all these to an absolutely flabbergasted Sai, who is like, wait, what? What am I supposed to be getting out of this? And I, I felt for Sai here. You really have this sense that for a second, Sai genuinely believes that just maybe the moon landing could actually have been faked. It just looks so hurt. You don't think it was? Uh, no, no, I'm not. A, I'm not a, not a truther on this one, Tracy. All right, all right, but I, I love this whole like little scene because. Poor Sai. I mean, you would have thought there was nothing left that could shock poor Sai after he's been forced to drink a cup of a man's urine. The whole business he's worked his life to build with Emmett is now becoming a fictional business. And yet there is some room left for shock in Sai. And he is shocked at how Varga plans to double the size of the company in just a few months' time. That's right. Just three months. He's wondering, why do we have to go so fast? Why are we taking this fraud like to these crazy levels? And Varga tells him... Because the shallow end of the pool is where the turds float. Again, this season is all about what comes out of your body in every second of every episode. And Sai learns that these fake books exist. And that is what the IRS is actually going to audit. Then we had two Stussy Lots for... I'm just going to say it probably my favorite scene from this season so far, where Mimo has dressed up as the IRS agent in painstaking detail. Like, this is eerie. This would be like your clone walking into a room and setting out exactly what you have down to, like, his mechanical pencil. Yeah, definitely mocking the IRS agent, whose name is LaRue Dollars. So Agent Dollars shows up and is excited to get to work, has brought all his mechanical pencils, but Mimo arrives posing as a Stussy attorney and informs Agent Dollars that he will not be doing any investigating today. They're going to need all of these requests in writing and that Stussy strongly objects to this investigation. It's like Mimo went from not speaking to having this fabulous, amazing turn as the faux lawyer, and I love it. Uh, then he hops in the car with Yuri, but someone is following them. It's Nikki and Ray hot on their tail. They're so clueless. It's painful to watch. They trail them to that mysterious out-of-the-way parking lot where Varga has his semi-trailer slash headquarters parked for now. And they actually catch sight of Varga. And they're like, oh, that must be the head honcho. I'm like, oh, stay away, guys, because you don't even know. Yeah. Did you catch the music that we were hearing as this uh, slow motion chase happens? More choral music, right? It was the Red Army Choir singing Cossack's song. Again, whenever bloodshed. you hear that, yeah, bloodshed is coming. But not yet. Ray is ready to reach for his revolver and does so, but Nikki literally stays his arm and says, No, babe, we got to wait for the play. Don't act until we know for sure what we're going to be doing. And they go back home, and we get this very different bathtub scene than the one we actually opened the season with. So if you remember, in episode one, we had this romantic bathtub, and they have candles, and they're celebrating their third place at the bridge tournament, and like everything's hunky-dory. And now we're in the basement apartment in a very dirty-looking bathtub filled with ice with a very bruised Nikki. Like how far they have fallen just tub-wise since episode one. Yeah, Nikki is 
posting nothing to Facebook at this moment. She is wincing in the bathtub. But we learn, even as she her teeth are chattering, she informs Ray that she has figured out what is going on with Emmett at VM. At least she's figured out that Emmett is wrapped up with a high-end loan shark, very probably against his will. So she's on to what's going on there. From there, we head to Stussy Lots, uh, the headquarters, where they're getting some unexpected guests again. Yeah, Varga has to suck the blood out of his mouth. Why do we have to keep watching that? Like, I get it. He picks at his teeth to the point that blood flows over his molars and makes you go, I get it. I get it. In a very graphic episode, this really might have been the most graphic moment. We get that up-close view of Varga picking his bad tooth with his nail. And I, I will say, you know, props to David Thewlis for finding the exact right expression for VM Varga to be wearing as he picks at his own bad tooth. But anyway, he's distracted from this uh, oral hygiene routine uh, by the fact that the cops are back. Officers Burgle and Lopez. It's our dream team. They're there and they're there to talk about Emmett because at this point they suspect that Ray had hired Maurice LaFay to go after Emmett and they're kind of trying to feel out their plan and see if Emmett knows anything about it and all of that. But before Emmett can really say much, Varga steps in and is amazingly confrontational. Like I had kind of thought of him as this like sly guy working in the background. He doesn't make a scene. He's always pulling strings, but he could not be calling more attention to himself in the scene and his confrontation with Gloria. It's kind of a shift for him. Yeah, I guess this seems to be the approach that Varga takes with the authorities is to be confrontational, be kind of a jerk, and give them a lot of trouble. And he seems to be operating under the assumption that your average local cops, your average workaday IRS agent is not going to work too hard to overcome any moderate obstacles that you present to them. I do love how Varga insinuates himself into Emmett's office. As Emmett is talking to the cops, Varga knocks. And you remember from the first episodes, we were hearing Varga use a lot of different languages to confuse people and throw them off. And he, he greets them with this cute little Japanese phrase, mushy mushy. Not quite the right tone for what's about to happen. But Gloria is not going to be put off by anything Varga tries to throw at her. She's only more suspicious. And uh, Emmett now realizes that Ray might have been trying to kill him, which isn't true. He just wanted to steal the stamp. But that's the impression that he's given by the officers, which is an unsettling moment for Ray and probably for anyone when you hear that your brother may have hired someone to kill you. Yeah. And in sort of what amounts to a battle of the wills here between Varga and Burgle, Varga succeeds in not even telling the police officers his name and getting Burgle to let him and Emmett know what they know or have guessed about what's going on with Ray and the stamp and all the Stussies, etc. I like that when he tries to throw Gloria off his trail by using like a Hitler analogy. And anytime you're using a Hitler analogy to try and get out of a situation and, you know, make yourself look better, like, no, that is not going to work. That only makes things worse. Yeah, and it seems like almost every episode we have a scene where someone tries to spin this rhetoric to explain to Gloria why she's going up the wrong path, why she doesn't know what she's doing, why she doesn't understand the big picture, mansplaining, could I say, sort of like highfalutin mansplaining. And she always just cuts them down with this really common sense line that just lets them know she sees through all of their BS. Anyways, they wrap things up with this delightful little exchange at the end where Varga asks uh, how she likes Eden Valley. And she says, oh, yeah, we got a tasty freeze and a Dairy Queen. We've got to go check that out, Tracy. I, I don't know. They've, they've been spinning some, some tall tales about Eden Valley. So we'll have to go investigate the ice cream situation for ourselves. Anyways, so now that Varga has crossed paths 
with Gloria Burgle. He's going to start to try and work his uh, creepy magic on her, and he types her into his Google machine, and surprisingly, nothing comes up. Gloria Burgle is a ghost. I will be a metaphorical ghost. I am completely redeemed. All of the technology stuff we've been getting all season has been building towards this moment. We know she doesn't like technology, and technology doesn't like her, so it actually makes sense that nothing would come up. Yeah. So Varga, who is sitting there tapping away at his computer in his trailer right next to the Stalin pinup, is unable to find a thing about Burgle, her personal life, or even what is going on with her police office. So he is going to need to send Yuri to Eden Valley to try to quietly, keeping a low profile, get the Ennis Stussy file so that Varga can see what's going on with Stussy, Stussy, and Stussy. So why is Yuri holding a taxidermied wolf head in his lap while they're having this conversation, which I believe is the same wolf head that we saw at the end of episode five, which means we had a glimpse of Yuri at then? I don't know. What is happening here? Um, maybe that's just standard practice when you're in like the semi-trailer of Doom. You just have your taxidermied wolf head with you. Yeah, maybe he's trying to figure out where to put it up, or maybe it just fell off the wall. That's right. So that Yuri is going to head to Eden Valley and get the Anastasi case files. Mimo, though, has a different job. He's going to go track down Ray and Nikki, and he's going to execute them. That is the order that Varga gives him. Yep. And that is plan B. Plan A was going to be that Mimo was going to go check out the planned meeting between Widow Goldfarb, mm. Emmett, and Sai. But it turns out Emmett is not at that dinner with the Widow Goldfarb because he has gone to Ray's. But Ray is not there. Because Ray and Nikki decided they had to get out of town. They were recuperating at the apartment and Gloria Burgle came knocking. They managed to hide from her when she peeked in the windows. But they're like, that's it. We got to bail. They go and they check in to the Ambassador Motor Inn, which the Ambassador Motel is where RFK was assassinated in California. So, I mean, obviously nothing in Fargo is a coincidence. But this would also be our second political assassination nod of the episode because we had the Archduke Ferdinand story in the beginning. And now we're getting RFK assassination vibes here. I don't know. But they book themselves into the hotel. Here's something else I noticed. They are in room 34. The room that was in Los Angeles that Gloria Burgle checked into was 203. So we've gone from room 203 to room 34. Can hotel room four five be far off? I bet we're going to go there by the end of the season. I mean, nothing good ever happens at a motel room in Fargo. So go stay with your grandma or something. Don't go to the motel. Yeah. Uh, once they get there, they realize that Ray, in his infinite wisdom, has forgotten their getaway cash. He's left the money he took out from the bank back at the apartment. So Nikki is nervous about letting him go. She knows he screws everything up, but she's really not in a condition to argue with him. So she says, all right. You go, get the money, come back. You know what Emmett says about Ray? Kind Kind of of a loser. loser. So yeah, so Ray has to go back to the hotel to get their cash stash. Nikki goes to get some ice to ice down her midsection and me never always... go to the ice machine right like did you get the horror movie vibes from this scene nothing good again ever happens at a motel specifically not at the ice machine yeah and if you're going to do it probably a further tip is don't leave the tv on some obnoxious like sitcom with a really loud laugh track which is just mocking you or your door open yeah that too all those details, things. details. but they've gone to this like no tell motel they paid in cash nikki is feeling fairly secure way too secure it turns out because Mimo is waiting for her but 
he ends up not attacking Nikki because he gets because called of what off. happens next. Right. Okay. 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 So, so flashback. Ray flashback. goes back to his place. He's got to get his getaway cash. He walks in. It's still dark, and Emmett is just sitting on the couch waiting for him. And of course, he has a key because he co-signed, he co-signed the mortgage this on Ray's beautiful condo. Moment was so brutally sad for me. Like Emmett's just sitting on the couch. For all he knows, Ray tried to kill him. And he just wants to make peace. He just wants for it to be over. And as a way to make the peace, he has brought the stamp. Yeah. You really just see Ray's pride here, his very wounded pride, that they've talked about it being about the stamp. They've talked about it being about the money. They've talked about it being about, well, they haven't, but you imagine at some point they debated who mother loved best, whatever. But Emmett is offering Ray anything here. He's like, here's the stamp. Here's the, What do you want? I've done everything for you, kid. What more do you want? And Ray just looks at him and says, I'm not less than you. Ray wants some kind of justification or acknowledgement that he is as much a human being as Emmett. And he's Ray. just not going to get it. Not from where he needs to come from. No. And they just can't get this right. Like even in this ultimate peace offering it turns into a fight between them they're tangling over the stamp which is in the newly reframed glass frame and in the tangle Emmett ends up smashing it into ray's face we pull back you think nothing really is wrong right oh he just cut his head right but no even to the last moment here Emmett is still trying to help ray ray realizes he has a shard of glass sticking into his neck and he reaches for it and Emmett's like no, no don't, don't touch it, it but Ray's kind of a loser and he pulls it out well I mean okay what would you do if you had glass in your neck but I would all right all right all right that's so that's fair that's it's, fair it's brutal in this last moment though when like the brothers kind of realize what's happening here Ray realizes that he's dying and Emmett realizes he's watching his brother die and they just say each other's names right like Ray calls out to Emmett for help and then falls and bleeds out on the carpet. And after a minute, Emmett says, Raymond? And that's kind of their last exchange. Yeah. And Emmett calls, not Cy, his former fixer. He calls his new fixer, VM Varga. Who is just ready to give another monologue here about Beethoven and Lenin and all kinds of things that I just sort of glossed over. I don't know. Did you get much out of that? Now let's leave that one be. I did notice that the piano sonata in question is piano sonata number 23. So the numerologists can have fun with that. I like that Emmett says there's been an accident and Varga says things of consequence rarely happen by accident, which totally undercuts the whole idea of Fargo, right? Like everything's always an accident on Fargo. So Varga heads to Ray's and calls Mimo to come help out. Which is good because he was in Nikki's motel room shower with a garret he was going to across the neck, which, you know, it's eerily similar to what we just saw happen to Ray. Yeah. So basically what happened is in Ray's dying, he actually saved Saved Nikki's life. That's true. So at Ray's, Again, I was really into what was happening here with some of the shots. You get this beautiful shot when Varga arrives of the two doors of the house. And then you move to the shot of Emmett sitting alone. So it's this idea of going from two to one, right? Which is what has just happened with the Stussy brothers. Emmett is a little surprised that Mimo shows up. He's wearing like crime scene booties. That's really good. That is is another detail I missed. (laughs) 
But Varga's like, yeah, you called for help. This is what help looks like. And so Varga decides, here's how we're going to spin this. We are going to make it look like Ray has been killed by his ex-con girlfriend, Nikki, whose motive is that Ray has been beating her, beating her in places you don't see, beating her in exactly those places that Yuri and Mimo. Which just makes you think, like, was this Varga's plan the whole time? Probably not, right. but... Well, no, because he is the one who sent Yuri and Mimo after Nikki, and they specifically did not touch her face. So this fits eerily well into his plan now that makes you think if Emmett hadn't had the scuffle with Ray ending in his death, that they would have dealt with Ray on their own. Yeah. So this seems to work out. So they're going to remove Emmett's fingerprints and leave the body. And Varga tries to prep Emmett for what he's going to need to do to get away with this, what amounts to a crime. And certainly now that he's not reporting it. Which detectives do you think are going to catch this case when they find Ray's body? Well, we know who's going to show up next. Who might get that? I know, right? We get this weird ending moment of Gloria Burgle in her car. She's like running over everything that's happened that day. And she decides, you know what? I'm going to go back to Ray's house. End of episode. Screw it, she says. Call St. Cloud, says, send Officer Lopez. We're going to go see what's going on with Ray. So here's one thing that I'm still struggling with this season, and I think it's that the detectives are not a big enough part of the story for me, the officers, right? In the previous seasons, the stakes were really high for Molly and then for Lou, and I just don't feel like there are any stakes here for Gloria and Winnie. I mean, yeah, I guess they're on Varga's radar now, and that's never a good thing, but they just are so tangential to this whole story that, I don't know, I mean, the heart of Fargo is usually the police trying to sort through the madness that they've been dragged into, and I'm not getting enough of that in this season for me. Well, I mean, Gloria has the personal involvement with the wrong Stussy who was killed, so there's that, so she had her pseudo stepfather who is actually the first person killed in this season and so there's that we, we've met her son who had a relationship also with his quasi grandfather there's that personal angle but the stakes just don't feel like they're there i mean you like really worried about the solverson family in both the previous two seasons the most time that we spent with gloria burgle we were in la literally completely away from anything else that's in any way related to the season. So what we're getting from Gloria is just so not tied in to the rest of the story that, and I'm sure that's going to change as we head into the last four episodes, but it's been odd how little of this season is about the detective work. That's true. And we were sort of being set up to move in a more conventional Fargo direction in that very first episode when Gloria discovers her stepfather murdered and she is in the house. Her young son is right there in the police car with her. Yeah, it did look like things were going to go right down that road where very quickly Gloria's entire family was going to get personally involved in this escalating crime drama. Winnie Lopez, very charming character. We know maybe too much information about certain aspects of her personal life, but we've not, we haven't met her husband. We haven't seen her house. She was introduced late in the season. So yeah, she has not had the uh, lead up time for her to be someone we care about as much as Gloria. We also don't have any like real loose cannons in this season. Like, yes, we have Varga, but I mean, he just will do anything. He'll kill anyone and I'm like not impressed by the creativity of it, I guess. But in season one, you had Lauren Malvo, who was like an amazing force of evil that you really had to wonder, like, where is he going to show up next? What evil thing is he going to do? And then you had like the bumbling Fargo crime family last season and Bo Keem, who, again, so unpredictable, so crazy. And this season, again, you're just getting Varga talking 
at length about everything that he does. There isn't that like loose cannon, unpredictable, oh my gosh, sense for me. You know who might turn into the loose cannon of this season is Nikki. Interesting. Yeah, no, maybe she's going to play that role. Because you kind of feel like now that like things have really, and certainly now that she doesn't know it yet, but her fiance has been killed, you know, the gloves are going to be off for Nikki. And if anyone is going to be capable of really surprising us and surprising the people surrounding her with what she's capable of, it's going to be Nikki Swango. So in future weeks, we're going to dig into the music of Fargo. We have interviews with two people who help create the sound. Yeah, we have Maggie Phillips, who we talked to last season as well, who's picking out the soundtrack moments, those pop nuggets, as Jay likes to say, that you hear scattered through the seasons. And we're also going to talk to Jeff Russo, the composer who has written the score for all three seasons of Fargo. So stay tuned. Aw is produced by Tracy Mumford, Jay Gabler, and Anna Reed. Our theme music is by the Valdons, courtesy of Secret Stash Records. Follow us on Twitter at Aujees Podcast, A-W-J-E-E-Z Podcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes and give us a rating. It really helps people find the show. Okay, then. Bye now. <laughs>